If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. We have, um, we've come to a place where um, Paul does something that, to be honest with you, is when I first read through this, I thought, well, how how am I going to preach this? Um, there are certain aspects of Scripture that you read them and you're like, yeah, that's, that'll, that'll definitely preach. I, kn- I know just how I'm going to go about that one. And then there, you come to some where it, it's a little bit harder, and I have to confess that uh, I, I've really struggled on this one. But it's the story of two sons. He's talking about two women, but he's also talking about the sons of those women The whole book of Galatians, remember, Paul is fighting against this idea that in order to please God, you have to jump through these hoops. You have to follow this legalistic sort of mindset. For for them, it would have been through the law. It would have been through being circumcised and being a good Jew and following all the dietary restrictions and following all of the sacrificial restrictions prescriptions and following all of the letter of the law and in doing that you would earn God's favor you would be righteous before God and that's what would make you holy and Paul just quite frankly comes against that and says no that's not the gospel that we preach to you the gospel that we preach to you is that you cannot be justified by God on your own efforts that you have to be justified by faith in Christ. It's what Christ has done, not what you do that earns you favor with God. And so the whole problem becomes when we are trying to earn God's favor, we miss the whole aspect of faith that brings us to God in the first place. And the danger for the Galatians is that they would hear the word of faith, that they would believe in the word of faith, until they get to this point where they suddenly say, but now I need to do and turn away from that faith. That faith, that what, what brings us to Christ in the first is what keeps us in Christ until the very end. Outside of that faith, there's no justification with God. And Paul, Paul comes from a tradition where things are... Every nuance of Scripture is meticulously picked apart. Rabbis for centuries had been writing and writing and writing and trying to guess some of the things that are between the lines and trying to figure out exactly why the Scripture says this particular thing. Why does the law tell this story? Why is this particular law important? What does this thing do? And over time, they give this commentary, this running commentary where they'll quote some verses and they'll give commentary on it. It's called a midrash. And through this, a lot of times they would take a story like Hagar and Sarah and turn it into allegory. Some would suggest that this particular thing was going on. It's not in the text, but it's kind of between the lines. And so you see this particular thing go on, and that's what explains this story. And others would suggest, no, 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 it's more about this other thing instead. And Paul, being the apostle that he is, and having the word of God that he has, realizes that there is a connection in the story of Hagar and Sarah to the Galatian church. 
to the things that they are going through. So this morning, we're going to look at that, and we're going to kind of break one of the rules of biblical hermeneutics, the idea of how do you understand what the Scripture means. One of those rules is that you don't just take things allegorically. But when the writer of the epistle is taking them allegorically, it looks a little different. So we're going to do something that's kind of out there for us. So just for a second, put on your... I don't know, fourth millennia B.C. hat for just a minute. (laughs) Step back in time with me about 5,500 years. There's this guy named Abraham. He's not even named Abraham when the story starts. He's named Abram. God calls Abram and says, go to a land that I show you. I'm not going to tell you where you're going. You just go. And he does. When God calls Abraham, he picks up his family and he moves. Now, Abram is a very rich guy. He's got a lot of sheep. He's got a lot, of, a lot of people in his household. There's a lot of servants, and he's got a wife named Sarai, and he's got, he's got these different servants, and one of them is named Eleazar. And at this point, Abram is talking to God, and God says, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the universe. And, and Abram says, but God, I don't even have a son. How am I going to have all these descendants? I don't even have a son to inherit what I leave behind. It's Eleazar is going to get it all. Because I don't have a son, I have to give it to a servant. God says, I'm going to give you a son. But like we often do, we try to take things into our own hands and instead of letting God do what he's going to do, instead, what happens? Sarah says, Abraham, this just ain't working. She's barren. She she can't have a child. And she's 90-something years old. He's... She's, at this point, she'd be about eight, 76, 75, 76 years old, somewhere in there. I know that because when, after this happens, it says that Abram was 84 years old, and she's about 10 years behind him. So she's, well, about 74. There we go. Now I got my math straight, about 74. And, and she says, here, take my servant, Hagar, go lay with her. Maybe we'll get a son that way. Nothing could go wrong, right? Oh, except everything goes wrong. She does have a son. And almost immediately, as soon as Hagar finds out she's pregnant, Hagar starts looking at Sarah with contempt. Sarah starts treating Hagar badly. Hagar tries to run away. God tells her, no, no, no. You go back. You serve her. I'm in this. And Hagar makes this beautiful praise of God, the God who sees her. In fact, she sets up an altar that she calls the, the, or a well, excuse me, that she calls the well of the living one who sees me. Beautiful picture in Genesis 16. Read that. Read that when you get home today. Read that passage and see, see how God is faithful even in, in the midst of a bad situation. But, It's still a bad situation. Finally, after all this time, Sarah is somewhere around 89. Abram's around 99. God comes back to Abram and says, by this time next year, you're going to have your son. Nothing could go wrong, right? Oh, except everything could go wrong. When the baby's born, 
Sarah's nursing the baby one day, and there's Ishmael mocking the child. And Sarah goes to Abraham and says, that, that boy's got to go. He can't stay here anymore. What in the world could we learn? What in the world could the Galatians learn from this story? Some 3,500 years before their time. What can we learn some 5,500 years removed? What is it that God could be telling us through that story? That's what we're going to look at today. Galatians 4. Stand with me as we read from God's Word. Galatians 4, we will read verses 21 through 31. This is God's Word, and if you let it, it will change your life. Verse 21 says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abram had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the woman who... Son of the free woman, excuse me, was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Pray with me. Father God, um, when we approach a passage like this, it, it, it sometimes can be elusive, it sometimes can be confusing, it sometimes can be, uh, God, just something that we, we really have to work at. Father, I pray that you have I thank you for, for helping me understand this, and I pray that I can make this clear as I preach. I pray that I would not fall into the traps of, of, of the rabbit holes, the potholes that are laying along the road, the rabbits that are, that are running along to the side, that, that, I, that I would be able to focus in, God, on the word that you want me to bring to this congregation. God, I also pray for them I pray that you, would light, that you would open up our hearts and enliven us. Give us wisdom to understand what you're saying and, and how it applies to our lives. That as we look at these two sons this morning, I pray that we would come to see ourselves and we would see what you want us to see in your word. Father, I pray that you would move in your word that was written some 1,900, 2,000 years ago about a story that occurred 3,500 years before that. And use it to speak today. God, we know your word is eternal. And you can do that. So Father, we ask your blessing on this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Y'all be seated. Um, my, my mind is just, there's like a hundred different things going on right now. So I would ask you to pray for me as I preach this morning. 
What we have in this passage is, is a, a glance at two sons. Specifically, he's talking about two women, but the implication is on the sons. And I want to focus on the sons. I don't want to focus on the women so much because the women are kind of the vehicle for the sons. And does that make sense? Like Paul talks about the women, but he's really talking about the sons. And so what I want to do is I want to focus in on the sons. And what we have are two different sons. Look back in verse 22. For it is written that Abram, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was according to the promise. The story of Sarah and Hagar revolves around this promise that God made to Abram. If you look back in Genesis, you'll see the promise to Abraham is, I'm going to give you a nation. I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're going to have descendants that are more multiple than the stars in the sky, more, more numerous than the grains of sand on the shore. He says, I'm going to do this for you, but how is God going to fulfill that promise? It reminds me of another story where God makes a promise. A story in Genesis where Adam and Eve are put in the garden and he gives them this beautiful garden with all these different trees and he says you can eat from any tree except this one tree and calls them to live in this, this state where they are ruling over the world, where they are God's representatives caring for His creation. And the problem is, how are they going to know what to do? How are they going to be wise for the task that God has given them? There's this one tree, it's called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So it might be more directly translated as the tree of knowing good and evil. And the whole idea of this tree is, are you going to take for yourself the knowledge or are you going to trust God to give it to you? God said, I will, I, I will give you what you need. I've already given it to you. But are you going to take what belongs to God, what is only His to give, or are you going to trust Him to give it to you? Solomon, God comes to Solomon and says, you're David's son. I was faithful to David. I'm going to be faithful to you. Ask me for what you will. Solomon has a choice. What do I ask for? Solomon is smart enough to know I need wisdom. So he gets wisdom. He asks, he says, I, I want wisdom. I need wisdom. Please grant me wisdom. And God says, great. I was hoping you'd say that. When God says that, he's really saying, I knew you were going to say that. But anyway, <laughs> not only am I going to give you wisdom, I'm going to give you other stuff too. I'm going to give you riches. I'm going to give you glory and fame. I'm going I'm to make your name great. I'm going to do incredible things for you because you didn't pursue those things. Now the problem is Solomon then starts to pursue those things. And so we have two different men. This man that loves God and wants to get wisdom the right way and then this other man, same man, who loves women and who loves riches and who just can't say no to his own passions and desires. And in the same way, we have these two sons, and they really are kind of two choices. 
Now, why, why, why does all this matter? Why, why does it matter that, one, that there's these two sons of Abraham, this, this son of the slave and son of the free woman? What, what, does it, what difference does it make? Jewish philosopher Philo, many rabbis through the centuries, recognized that this story was not just true from the historical, but there was deeper meaning in it. It was much more than just a family feud. Ishmael and Isaac represented two vastly different heritages. One, the child of the free woman, Isaac, represented a lineage through which the nation of Israel would derive, uh, along with the lineages of Moses and Aaron, David, and eventually the Messiah. God would bring the fulfillment of his promises through that one line. The other son, Ishmael, represented a lineage that was devoid of the ultimate of God's blessing. Now, don't get me wrong. God did bless Ishmael, but it wasn't the same kind of a blessing. The promise was through Isaac. Paul refers back to the story because it represents a key divide in the Galatian churches. The fight over the priority of the gospel and the place of the law boiled down to the question, who has the rightful claim on God's blessing? Is it because you're a Jew? Or because you've put faith in Christ? Is it because you're trusting in the law and in your works? Or you're trusting in Jesus? That's the question. Who has the claim to the blessings of God? And so these two sons represented two covenants. Look in verses 24 and 25. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. Uh, I should probably pause here and tell you what an allegory is. In case you don't know, that's okay. An allegory is basically a story that has deeper meaning. A sower went out to sow some seed, cut, throws it out, and, and some of it lands on rocky ground, and it's picked off by the birds. Some of it falls on ground with rocks just beneath the surface, and it springs up immediately, but then as soon as the heat of the day comes out, it gets withered. Some falls in ground full of thorns and bristles and briars, and it grows up, but it soon the thorns and the thistles and the briars choke it out so that it dies. But some falls on good soil, and it grows and it produces a plentiful harvest. When Jesus tells these stories, we often call them parables. But the parables are often a different sort of story. They're not just on the surface, there's something beneath the surface. There's something deeper that God is trying to get across. And the story helps us be able to picture what's going on on a deeper level, on a level that we can understand. That's what an allegory is. Parables are just a form of allegory. When he's talking about looking at this allegorically, he's looking for that deeper meaning. He's looking for what does this story really tell us. It's not just about a couple of women with a couple of sons. It's not just talking about the family history. There's something deeper. What is it telling us? There's a danger in interpreting Scripture this way. We can often be a lot more creative than God wants us to be. We can start to assign little things. There was, there was a story of um, the Good Samaritan that people began to take as allegory. And Christians, Christians, mind you, would allegorize every tiny 
detail of the story. They would allegorize every possible nitpicky aspect of it to the point where you were searching so deep that you missed the whole meaning which is right there on the surface. Be kind to other people. Right? That's the whole point of the story of the Good Samaritan. The guy that you come across that needs help, he is your neighbor, love him. That's, that's the story. That's the purpose. It's right there on the surface. But they dig down so deep that you end up in the permafrost and you can't even, can't even get the truth out of it anymore. Y'all, that's, that's, the, that's the danger of allegorizing. But here, Paul does it for us. And so we can see the deeper meaning, not just because we have these super spiritual eyes, but because God has revealed it, and now Paul can tell us what, what's going on here. So what does he say? Well, these two women represent two covenants, and these sons are sons of those covenants. One's a slave. That's Hagar. Hagar, verse 25, look back in 25. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Now, what happened on Mount Sinai? Ten Commandments. Moses comes down the mountain with those Ten Commandments, right? The law was given to Israel at Mount Sinai. All 613 statutes that would become known as the Torah, all of them given on that one mountain. That's a long time to be on a mountain. Now, I don't know if Moses was writing. I hope he was writing. He was up there for like 40 days. He should have been writing it down. I would have had to have written it down. My wife gives me a grocery list of three items. I start saying, whoa, 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 let's write this down. <laughs> Just text it to me. And then I get like 30 texts of different things as she's thinking of more stuff. And that's okay. It's all written down. I have a list. I can look at it and say, all right, these are the things that I need. And I still forget stuff. But Moses, 613 laws, all on top of this mountain, what's he going to do? He's got to be writing it down. But what happens on Mount Sinai is that they are, they are hearing the law. Moses is hearing the law, and he's writing it down, and he's sharing the law with the people at the foot of the mountain. And so this Mount Sinai is representative of the law. It's not representative of, of people outside of Israel. Some of the rabbis thought, well, the sons of Hagar... Since that's Ishmael and he's, he's the, the progenitor of all of the Arabs, that that's just people that are outside of the Jewish line. People that are outside that aren't us. The Gentiles. Those dogs, as they would refer to them. Those are those other people. Paul says, no. She actually represents Jerusalem. Look at this. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. Now, what is the slavery Paul's talking about? Slavery to sin. Look back in 3.23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So here, before faith comes, we're captured by the law. Remember, we talked about this. The law is looking out for us. It's protecting us. It's guarding us. It's, it's providing us. It's leading us toward faith. But it's still a master over us. It's still our guardian. It's still something that we are subject to, just like a slave is subject to a master. Before faith comes, we are subject to the law. 
And the children of Hagar are the ones that are still subject to that law. Some people just haven't made that journey yet. They haven't made that journey from law to faith. They haven't made that journey from being under the law to being under grace. What about you? Have you made that journey? Have you made that journey from being under the law to, to trying to earn God's favor with everything that you do? Are you under grace where you've recognized that it's trusting Christ that brings you to God? There's still some, many in our day, that are enslaved to their sin under the law. Look at the other son, verse 26. But Jerusalem above is free. See, the Jerusalem here on earth, we're still, they're still slaves. They're still captured, enslaved by the law in their sin. But the Jerusalem above is free. The Jerusalem above is a whole different sort of Jerusalem. It's got a whole different sort of heritage. For it is written, and he goes to Isaiah 54. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are, in la- are not in labor. Now, I can't imagine, um, I can't imagine, I can slightly, but not completely. can't imagine what it's like to want a child and not be able to have one. If, if that's you, let me know. I've got plenty of extras I can lend out. Um, Carrie's like, mm, I don't know, maybe sometimes. Um, I can imagine a little bit how painful it would be to not be able to have a child. Isaiah here is calling the barren woman the one who cannot give birth to rejoice, break forth, cry aloud, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, normally... Normally, when we, when we look back at Scripture, we look at it, and we look at that one verse, and we look up at that one verse, and we say, oh, okay, all right, I get what he's saying. That's not the way the Jewish mind thinks. When the Jewish mind hears a verse of Scripture, they think of the Scripture that follows. Because it's not just that verse that he's pulling to mind. He's saying, he's saying it's this verse and what follows. Today, if you go into a Jewish synagogue, they will sing the Shema. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What automatically comes up in the Jewish mind is the very next verse. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That immediately comes to mind. Because they recognize that that first verse isn't the high point. That first verse brings to mind what follows. So listen, just listen to Isaiah 54. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Now I've heard this preached about church building programs. You know what this is talking about? Add rooms to the house because you're going to have some kids. Listen to what he says. Enlarge the place of your tent. Now, remember, when you have a tent, all you got to do is sew new stuff on to make it bigger. <laughs> you don't have to tear down a wall. and build, No, you just, you just start sewing and adding on fabric to the tent, and you add on more stakes, 
And you, that's what he's talking about here. He says, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes because you need longer cords and stronger stakes if you're going to have a bigger house. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and the people, the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you. I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in anemone. I will lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and the great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression. You shall not fear and from terror, for it will not come upon you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not for me. Whoever stirs up strife among you shall fall because of you. Behold, I've created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me declares the Lord. I just have to ask, are you the child of the slave? Are you the child of the free? Because this promise that that Isaiah talks about in 54 is not just for a nation of Israel who are Jews by birth. This is for the true Israel for the sons of God and daughters, those who trust in his name. That's for us. God will do that for us. Protect us and provide us and have great compassion on us and not let us be destroyed. Are are you in that family? That family of God? Is this you? Or are you a child of the slave woman? Still trapped in your sin. 
Trust him to remove the sin and make you right. Trust him to bring you freedom, to make you a child of God, to bring you into communion with all the saints, all the sons and daughters of God in this community that we call the church. These two sons represent two covenants and they have two destinies. Those who are in Christ are heirs of God's promises. He's already tipped his hat a little bit on this. Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ's, he makes the argument that, that you, now that faith has come, what difference Christ has made. And he says, if you are Christ, then you are Abram's offspring. Heirs according to promise. Those who are in Christ are God's promised heirs. Now he weaves that thread into the discussion of Hagar. And Sarah, verse 28, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Look down at verse 31. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but children of the free woman. You see, Paul sees that it's not just the Jews who are the children of Isaac. It's those who have received Christ. Are you a child of slavery or are you a child of the free? Make no mistake, these two separate sons of two separate covenants have Two separate destinies. Verse 30. What does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Just like Abraham cast out Hagar and Ishmael after Isaac's birth, it's an allegory of what God is going to do. He's going to cast out those whom he does not know. Depart from me. You who work iniquity, I never knew you. But Lord, we, we, we did all these great things. We cast out these demons. We, we performed all these miracles. We, we preached your word. God, we went to church every single Sunday. Every time the doors were open, we were there unless somebody was hideously sick because we didn't want to pass on an illness. There's no need in sharing germs in the family of God. But God, we, we did all these wonderful things in your name. We went on all these mission trips. We paid all this tithe money. We did all of these great things that... that he says, I never knew you. Leave. Depart. I never knew you. But those whom he does know, they get up. And he says, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come enter into your rest. When I was hungry, you clothed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was, when I was in need, you provided for me. When I was sick, you cared for me. And when did we see you all that? Well, whenever you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. There's something to be said when you are a child of God, when you are a child of the promise, when you are a child of the freed woman and not of the slave woman, everything you do matters to him. When you're not, it doesn't matter what you do for him. You're still a slave, not a son. This morning, we're going to celebrate a communion And you might wonder, what does all this have to do with communion? Well, it points us back to a basic truth. The way that we can commune together is because of what God has done in each of us.
If you're not a child of God, I want to invite you. I'm going to be standing down here at the front. I'm going to invite you to come. And this time while we sing the hymn. And if, if you are a child of God and maybe you're just, maybe you're just, um, life has been hard and it just isn't working the way that you think it ought to. I'll be glad to pray with you and help you move on in your journey. Come see me while we sing this song.